This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So please, you can join us for the next hour. And this is an opportunity for you, our friends who are listening, to call in with questions as you're studying God's word. Maybe there's a subject you are not sure as to what it means or how it applies here in the 21st century. And so there are several ways in which you can contact us. Again, the local 843 exchange is 525 1859, 525-1859, South Carolina Exchange 843. You can also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for The Bible Line, TBL at net. If you do call us at 843-525-1859, you can go on the air live with your question And we certainly give preference and highlight live callers. Or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. And uh, Deb will shoot it here to us in the studio. Well, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll begin this morning. Indeed, Pastor, we do have a live call standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Live. Hey, good morning. I'm calling from Savannah, Georgia. Um, I had a question about uh, the order of creation. Um, I was having a discussion with someone a couple of weeks ago, and they said they couldn't believe the Bible because in the very beginning of the Bible, it uh, says God created light before he created the stars and the heavenly bodies that gave light on the earth. Um, and I went and read through it myself, and I had a, it, I did have kind of a hard time um, reconciling that, so I was wondering if you could help me understand how God created the light and separated light from darkness and created uh, morning and evening before he created the uh, heavenly bodies? Sure, it's a great question. And what you might want to do is go to my Genesis series. I've preached the entire book of Genesis, verse by verse by verse. I think I did 60-some sermons on the book of Genesis. And listen to the early sermons where I delineate it in great detail. Listen, God is light. Um, And so his very nature is that of light. And so you might expect him to reflect his nature right at the start. And so it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and darkness he called night, and there was evening, there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and gathering of the waters he called Uh, seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, planting yield, 
of planting, um, excuse me, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind and so on. This was the third day. Then God said, and here's uh, one of your questions, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the sea from the night. So there's a significant qualitative difference that is brought out in verse 14 that is not brought out in verse 4. God said in verse 3 and repeated himself in terms of what he did in verse 4, let there be light, singular in Hebrew. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. So prior to that, of course, the earth was form was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And so out of that dark, void form, God, like a master potter taking a piece of clay, began to unfold it, and it began by creating light. Whereas when you come to uh, verse 14, then God said, let there be lights. And in the Hebrew text, it is plural. In fact, there's a singular, there's a dual, and there is uh, three or more. And so God, of course, is speaking immediately in reference to uh, the earth. And so he speaks of the sun and the moon, and he uses a dual in the Hebrew text. So it, there's a parallel here, like God creates the water, and then later he fills the water. God creates the land, later he fills the land. God creates the light in the sky above, so to speak, and then he fills it. And so there's these parallels that run all the way through. Listen, it's just a simple, plain reading of the text. And the challenge, of course, with the old earth creationists, which it may be that your friend is coming from, where when you read Genesis 1, the plain reading is just he did it in six days. And, of course, I know that, not just from the plain reading, Uh, and the use of evening and morning one day, which is how a Jew measures a day, Uh, not to mention that when there's um, a commentary written on this section of Scripture in Exodus 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments the Decalogue, he says, in six days you shall do your work, on the seventh you won't do any work, and then he goes back to creation because God in six days created the heavens and rested on the seventh, so he draws a direct parallel. So the problem with some people is the order here of creation. How could God, you know, make the plants before he put the sun in the sky? Well, he couldn't. In the process of photosynthesis could not take place unless, of course, we're talking about uh, six literal 24-hour days. But if you create gaps of time between the days or you go with the long day theory that the days are not 24-hour days but Uh, you know, millennia long in which to try to dovetail what we see with science, because science wants you to believe that this world has been around for billions and billions and billions of years, that it's been going on forever and ever through the process of evolution because they want to distance God. They want to repress him, as Romans 1 says, as being the creator in order to put him out of the picture like he's not really involved, hasn't been involved, and therefore there's no real accountability. And that's what evolution does at its root core. So um, what I would suggest you do, though, because you're asking really an armchair question, 
And so I have a number of sermons just on Genesis chapter 1 where I delineate all these issues that you're describing and what drives the different positions and why people have problems with the simple reading of the text. But when God created the heavens and the earth, he created it with the appearance of age, just like when Adam and Eve were created. They were not little infants. They were full-grown adults. And when God made the trees in the Garden of Eden where they were placed, they were mature, full, fruit-bearing trees. So God made the world with the appearance of age. But, of course, the evolutionist needs millennia, billions of years in order to pull off his theory. It's the only way he can reconcile it. And it's, of course, contrary to Scripture and antithetical to what Jesus said about the creation of the heavens and the earth. But again, I go through all these and detail them. So go to searchthescriptures.org, search by Scripture, click on Genesis. You'll see a number of sermons, especially you want to listen to the sermons on the first two chapters because we don't have two different creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. We have a further explained creation account in Genesis 2, but those two chapters dovetail one another, and you need to study them together. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we have another another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Hi, doc- Hi Dr. Brogy. How are you? Uh, doing well. Thanks for calling today. What can we do to be of help? I have one question. I, um, I have begun a gospel preaching ministry at a methadone clinic with a uh, a pastor friend of mine. I don't go to his church. However, he is a five-point Calvinist. Uh, meanwhile, I'm not. And so I I find myself having to um, watch my words in order to uh, preach the gospel in a way that won't um, rub up against his convictions. And I'm wondering if you think that that's a wise thing to do in order to keep our, our ministry intact, or if I should um, not be so worried about his convictions, but about really preaching um, the gospel as I understand it. Like, sometimes I I can't really say to people directly, hey, God loves you, and he died for you, you know, and so I just like your thoughts on that. So you, you couch your words like, um, uh, God loves those who will repent and believe, or that's typically how the Calvinists uh, does, or Christ died for those who would repent and believe, or uh, again, affirming the limited aspect of the atonement. To me, that would be very difficult. I would have great difficulty doing that. I'm not um, like opposed at times to making some conciliatory adjustments uh, when the four spiritual laws, which 40, 50, well, 50 years, oh, 70 years ago now, I'm thinking here, uh, Dr. Bill Bright put out, and it was what we called back then an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel. Um, back then, we would say, oh, that person needs an Acts 17 presentation, or they need an Acts 2 presentation. Uh, an Acts 2 presentation had an assumption that you had a certain knowledge of Scripture, and Acts 17 would be more like the folks on Mars Hill where there's route paganism, and that's really where our culture is today. You talk to someone 18, 19, 20 years old, they don't know who Moses was. If you ask them, did Adam eat the fruit? Who's Adam? I mean, the biblical ignorance is at just an unprecedented height here in our nation. But when Dr. Bright wrote The Four Spiritual Laws, he wrote, God loves you and has 
a wonderful plan for your life. And he had a campaign uh, in the 1970s called the I Found It campaign. And so they had billboards up across America on major highways. I found it. You can too. And the Calvinists, one, they didn't like, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And so Dr. Bright was willing in order to bring the Presbyterian brothers uh, into the campaign. He changed the reading of the four spiritual laws. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life meaning he doesn't have one for everyone, but he offers one to everyone. And and they took that statement through their grid of theology, and he took it through his grid of theology. He thought of it differently in that, um, in one sense, God does have a plan for everyone. Not everyone rejects it, but God does offer it for everyone. But in the Calvinist uh, grid of theology, God doesn't have a plan for everyone, only for those who are elect. So he was willing to couch his words in order to win those brothers. And if it's like, if you're a Calvinist pastor, it might be that you're being oversensitive um, where you can approach him and say, hey, look, you know, if I say, hey, God loves you and Christ died for you, are you going to get all bent out of shape on that where you're going to say you can't come here anymore? Um, Or can you trust me with the way I would present the gospel without compromising the truth of the gospel. Can you trust me with that and just look at it? Well, God's sovereign, and if he's got any elect people here, they're going to be saved no matter what, no matter how uh, I might use some specific nuanced words. So I would try to, you know, speak the truth in love, get that out in the forefront. I would have real difficulty. I'd like to be, I like to walk up to anyone if God turns the conversation to spiritual things, and I'll say, listen, Jesus Christ died for you. He died for you personally. Uh, He didn't die just for everyone. The book of Hebrews affirms (laughs) he died for each one. His death was substitutionary in nature for each and every person, which becomes not only as the basis for justification, it also becomes the basis for condemnation, where in my course on soteriology, which is available at the Institute of Biblical Studies, I delineate these issues on a limited versus an unlimited atonement. And some people who are listening, this is new to them, but there are people who are five-point Calvinists, as our caller brought up, who do not believe that Jesus died for everyone, but that his atonement, his death was limited only for those who would believe. But his atonement also becomes the basis of condemnation for those who won't believe. No one will be able to say in the judgment, well, even if I wanted to believe, I didn't have an opportunity to escape because there was no provision made for me. But lay all that aside, um, I would have a heart-to-heart talk with this brother. My guess is, this is my sense, is he probably appreciates you that you care about the undesirables, as some would describe them, uh, the unwanted people, that you love them enough where you're willing to share your heart with them and try to introduce them into the kingdom. And my guess is is that you're probably being overly cautious, but I would have that conversation. That is a great question. I really appreciate that brother uh, asking that. All right. Fantastic. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we have Alberto on line three. Good morning. Go ahead, good Alberto. Good morning, Carl and Rick. Yes. Good yeah, morning. my question is, I know the Bible says, like Apostle Paul said, Apostle supposed to false teachers and supposed to false teaching and heretics and heretics. 
but um, but how do you determine when it's a false teacher or a heretic? But shouldn't we, sometimes we preachers sometimes tend to be too hard on other ministers or nitpick everything they teach instead of working together to accomplish to win the world for Christ? You know, and like, like uh, so if the Bible, Christ said, the body against itself will not stand. So if we just work together and try to win the Lord, the lost for the cause of Christ, and I understand that we, we, there's a lot of, there's a lot of false teaching, a lot of craziness going on in churches today. But uh, how could, could we really, be, you know, just not be so divided among ourselves to accomplish the real goal to win the world, the Great Commission of Christ, and not be bothering ourselves in the process? Alberto, that is a great question. Uh, you know, um, there was a slogan that has been expressed by a number of people through the centuries and credited to different individuals in the course of church history. Most would uh, credit it to a 4th century theologian by the name of Augustine. And Augustine was um, he's claimed actually by uh, both Roman Catholics and uh, by Protestants. He, of course... Uh, lived at a time uh, prior to the official establishment of the Roman Church in 575, where the Bishop of Rome uh, put himself out there as the first pope. But he is um, basically communicated the truth that in essentials we need unity, in areas of non-essentiality that we need to show charity, so to speak. And so, for instance, um, the first caller that was just, or the second caller that was just with us this morning was uh, involved with another brother who believes the atonement of Christ is limited versus he is of the persuasion as I am that Christ died for all men, that his atonement was unlimited. And so his desire was, well, he wants to be unified with this brother and serve together for the cause of Christ to reach some of the you know, meth addicts and people like that that he's trying to share Christ with. Um, and so he wants to remain unified and to carry on the cause. So that's, that's really a good example. So first, let me just say there's a distinction in the Bible between a false teacher and false doctrine. Someone can come to a false conclusion. The Apostle Peter was confronted to his face by the Apostle Paul as the book of Galatians delineates over an issue that Paul called hypocrisy, but it was based on a false premise that, <coughs> excuse me, that Peter himself had, you know, postulated to his Jewish brothers as to how they should deal with Gentiles. So it's possible to be wrong on an issue, but not to be, quote unquote, a false teacher. And that's a big distinction. Like, for instance, there are people who would advocate infant baptism. I would say that that's a false teaching. Um, I would not say they are false teachers. Why? Because on the essentials, the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the substitutionary atonement, the infallibility, the inerrancy of the Bible, the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Christ, the physical, literal return of Christ, on the essentials were fully agreed. So they're not heretics, they're not false teachers. And if you want to do a study, well, how do I discern what a false teacher is? 
there's two principal chapters in the Bible that uh, underscore this. So it's found throughout the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. But study the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is what, to the early church, what Acts was to the early church. The Acts of the Apostles is the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostates is the book of Jude. And it really gives you the mark of a false teacher because they're not always easy to identify. Someone doesn't walk into your church and say, I'm a false teacher. I'm here to destroy the place. No, the book of Jude says they they come in unsuspecting. Uh, They enter in and people aren't aware that they're false teachers. But given enough time and wise discernment from spiritually minded people, they can identify them. And the book of Jude will help you to do that. The other chapter, of course, would be Second Peter chapter 2, which is a parallel chapter. But there is a place clearly in the New Testament to separate from those who are false teachers. And you're not being unloving. And so some people say, well, we just need to get all the churches together and, you know, and we'll all work together. And by this, they'll know my disciples. They have love for one another. And, you know, and by this, they'll know the Father sent me, John 17, that we're unified. And they take those verses grossly out of their New Testament context. God doesn't call every church, say, in Beaufort County to get together. We've got churches in Beaufort County that deny the infallibility of Scripture. That's an essential. We've got churches in Beaufort County that perform homosexual marriages. That's a attack against one of the essentials, an application of the authority and the infallibility of the Scripture. So the Bible teaches biblical separation. Jesus himself taught it in Revelation chapter 2. He addresses the seven churches of the Revelation, and he speaks that there is a time. I have a few things against you because there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And Christ was upset that they allowed this kind of false teaching to come into their church. They should have, you know, reprimanded these people and removed them from the fellowship. Now, some would say that's unloving. But listen, when when you link arms with a false teacher, you're being complicit, and you, by application, are endorsing the falsities that they are affirming. And God warns us against such things. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, just turned over there. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the sound doctrine conforming to godliness that he's just spent five chapters unfolding, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has morbid interests in controversial questions and disputes about words and so on and so forth. And and and, and he goes on and he says, you're not allowed to allow this kind of Um, garbage in the church. You're to do something about it. When Paul writes another pastoral epistle, he writes in uh, Titus chapter 3. Let me just turn over there for a moment. He says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. In the context, factious is someone who's bringing in doctrine contrary to the doctrine they had received through the apostle Paul and through Christ. He says, knowing, reject him, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning and being self-condemned. 
So the church has done a lot under the name of uh, unity that has only brought, in essence, uh, compromise to the infallibility in Christ. If he were here, he would give us some of the messages that he gave to the churches, you know, in the Revelation. And we, we need to pay close attention to it. So um, this is a good question. So when you are able to be unified on because you recognize they believe in the essentials, then hold on to it. Um, you've called before, Alberto. I remember your voice in the doctrine of eternal security. That is, I think, a New Testament doctrine. And by the way, for nearly 1,500 years of church history, that was the only position that Christians taught, that once we're saved, we are saved forever, that you cannot lose your salvation until Jacobus Arminius came along. And so we use the term Arminianism, who taught it differently and saw it differently. Lay that aside, I can fellowship with a brother who believes in the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, the Lordship of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection as the only way of escape to save me. Um, He believes in the infallibility of Scripture and so on. And we can have fellowship even though he thinks that he might be able to lose his salvation. I could still work with him, but he, I think, has a false teaching in that area, and he would probably say, I have a false teaching in this area. Um, But we could still work and we could still fellowship, and we could still work together on this issue without, you know, being um, at odds with each other. And that's where an essentials unity and non-essential liberty and all things charity. And again, that statement has been, you know, attributed to a number of different people. Most would say it was Augustine first, but it is, a, I think, a biblical principle. An essentials unity and non-essentials, liberty, and all things charity. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Neil from Texas dictated his question. He writes, or actually emailed it. He writes, in 1994, here's where, once it's out there, everybody's got it. 1994, (laughs) in a Sunday morning, you said to the congregation, you... And then, parenthetically, we all crucify Jesus. What are the best scriptures that clearly and directly teach this? Well, uh, it's a it's a great great question. Um, <laughs> that's an oldie goldie. I didn't know we had any of those out there, but I guess we do, huh, Rick? Yes, sir. And all right. Well, I haven't changed my view on it, and uh, and I'm not alone in that view. Uh, there are a number of passages, but initially what would come to my mind, of course, would be uh, Isaiah chapter 53, where it says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Uh, This is really the confession of the Jewish people that they will make during the time of the Great Tribulation period. The prophet Isaiah, uh, Zechariah says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. And so some would say, well, the Jews uh, murdered Christ, and they're responsible for his death. Well, they were partly responsible. They indeed shouted that day, his blood be on us and our children. They asked for the death of Christ, though they did not physically, literally, actually drive the nails through his hands and feet. The Roman soldiers did that, who, of course, were Gentiles. So on the one hand, the Jews were responsible for the death of Christ. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church, I think it was in the 1960s, uh, I think it was Pope Paul VI, don't quote me on that, but they wrote a argument that said, well, um, indeed, were in one sense responsible for the death of Christ, but they argued especially the Jews. And one of the reasons that Gentiles have had difficulty in reaching Jews is that through anti-Semitic slurs, um, the Gentile church has accused the Jews of deicide, that they murdered God. Well, listen, the Jews were involved in the death of Christ, and so he speaks of... um, you know, their confession here in Isaiah 53, it's a prophetic passage dealing with the Messiah. But in addition to that, there were Roman soldiers who were involved. But in addition to that, indeed, Gentiles were involved because this passage, when he says he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being, it's not just in reference to the Jewish people. You have divine commentary on this and the New Testament. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter quotes this, and he speaks about how he bore our sins in his own body on the cross, having died to sins, that we might live to righteousness, for by his stripes you're healed, quoting Isaiah 53. So Peter is addressing not just a Jewish audience, but Jews and Gentiles. So in one sense, we're all responsible. The Jews were responsible. The Roman soldiers were responsible. It was your sin, my sins, that were you know, the nails on our hard hearts that were the hammers that crucified the Lord Jesus. But I might also add, God was involved. But the Lord, in this same chapter, Isaiah fifty three ten, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would offer himself as a guilt offering. So Christ allowed his life to be taken. He said no one would take it from him. He had authority to lay it down and authority to take it up, and you certainly see that in the manner in which he was arrested. But the Father was pleased to crush him, to allow this to happen in order that our sin might be paid for. And so there is a total agreement within the Trinity itself The Spirit led him through the whole process. The Gospels unfold. The Father approved it, and the Son enacted it. And so each member of the Godhead is involved in the crucifixion of Christ, but we're also responsible in the sense that he's being crucified for us, for our iniquities, for our sin. So um, it's it's a good question Neil asked from an old message. Yes, indeed. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. We've got about... 23 minutes left. Do we have time to do this one question on 1 Corinthians? I think so. All right. Leon emailed us. He would like you to please explain 1 Corinthians 13, 7 to 10, particularly what will be done away with. Well, this is a a great passage, and it's a passage that, you know, doctoral dissertations are done on. I've read doctoral dissertations just on these uh, portions of Scripture. 
Uh, and, and that's a great avenue to have now for like someone like myself, the two seminaries I graduated from, I have access to their libraries and a lot of uh, the works are put online and you know, I can go online and access and download different things. And, you know, if someone spends uh, two years writing on one verse of scripture, he might have something potentially to say, uh, sometimes not, though there is really nothing new under the sun. First Corinthians 13, by the way, is sandwiched in between two chapters that deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. We've got a live caller, so I'll break away for a second, and we'll come back to this. Go ahead. All right. We always give preference to live callers, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony Vaughn. How are you doing? You and Pastor Bogus. Hey, Anthony. We're doing well. Thank you. Nice to hear your voice. You doing all right? Uh, question for you. Uh, not so much a question. Um, yeah. You know, I, I listened to you Sunday two times for the first service and the second service. Okay. And it's been pretty good. Uh seems like I get a little bit more at the second service. I don't know why. Well, I, I, but, uh, I, I go a little longer, and I'm a, I'm a little more awake than I am at, you know, I've been up since 5 a.m., and sometimes I'm a little, not quite as fresh in that first service, but my blood pressure is usually gone up by the end of the uh, first service, and the, uh, the blood's pumping through uh, the heart, and the spirit's able well, to use that. My, my favorite. I wrote down, I got a, a book of your notes and statements that you said. You said Sunday that, and if you could just come on, I got three little short, if you could come on. Yep, go ahead. Uh-huh. You said Sunday, you don't need any money to preach the gospel. Right. And in another quote, you said, if Paul could share the gospel while in chains, then what's our excuse? Right. And you also said, if you will be a if you will be a servant, God would open doors for you. Yes. Could you comment on that? I know what you're saying, but I just want to hear if you could comment on that. Comment Absolutely. On that, I would so let me deal with the first one. We don't need money to share the gospel. I mean, think about the early church. They did so much with so little. No seminaries, no Bible colleges, no radio, no television, no internet. Um, they didn't even have printed portable Bibles they could carry around. Most of the scripture they had to memorize unless they were in a synagogue where you had a receptacle of uh, Old Testament scriptures, uh, though occasionally people would have a personal copy. But they did so little with so much. We have so much, and we're doing so little. And sometimes the excuse is what we need is money. You don't really need money. All you need is an obedient voice an obedient Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit, who knows what the plan of salvation is, is willing to share it. That's really all it takes. Uh, One person taking another person through the plan of salvation. I often remind pastors all the time, what's the critical event? The critical event is one believer taking an unbeliever through the, the plan of salvation so that they can make a decision for Christ under the influence of God the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't take money to pull that off. Um, Is it nice to, you know, do some promotional event that might bring people to your church, to your campus? Yeah, but you can do all that stuff. And unless it ultimately comes down to taking someone through the plan of salvation, that's all it is, is stuff. It may have gotten someone to some big event that created a big crowd, but not necessarily a conversion. And again, it can be done in a group setting. I remember listening to a speaker we brought in, and someone 
was asking me for a critique. It was a fellow elder, and I said, well, to be honest with you, I think he did a terrible job. He didn't do what we asked him to do. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, it takes a presentation of the gospel for someone to be converted, and no one could have heard what he said and have been converted just on the basis of what they heard. See, we go to one of two extremes. We go to one extreme where we exhort people and emotionalize them up to make a decision, but there's no content, and all we get is emotionalism. You may get a decision, but you don't get a conversion. At the other extreme, and I was talking to a pastor about this last Sunday who called me, and uh, you get the extreme where someone uh, educates someone with the truth of the gospel, but there's no appeal. And I was reminding him, I said, you need to ask a person to make a decision. When you walk them through the plan of salvation, you need to ask the person to make a decision for Christ. And I know when I trained for years, all the United States Campus Crusade for Christ staff, I would be flown around to the country to different states, and I would train them on how to present the plan of salvation clearly. Or there came a point where they videotaped it, and for over a decade, every single Crusade staff member had to listen to my training on the presentation of the gospel. And what I discovered was the hardest thing for these are, remember, these are like paid professionals. This is what they do for a living was when they came to the end of the gospel presentation to ask the person to respond. And that's what we're called to do. Because if you educate without asking them to respond, all you've done is you've educated them. And so it's as if God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It doesn't cost any money to do that. It could be done in a group setting or it could be done individually. The second comment that he had was, uh, how Paul, yeah, Paul mentioned, you know, the, the chain that he had. Uh, let me read from Philippians. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So remember, Paul is writing from Rome. He is chained to a guard. Uh, Every four hours, history tells us, the Praetorian guards would be rotated out, a new guard would come in. And so through all of these different guards over the course of two years that he spent there, he had the opportunity to evangelize the whole Praetorian guard. I mean, he had a captive audience, literally. And when the church in Rome observed this, they thought, look, if, if Paul doesn't stop when he's under house arrest, you know, what would some people do? Oh, you know, tell their brethren back home, I'm just, I'm locked up for two years and it's miserable and pray for me. And Paul's got like a whole different attitude. He sees it as an opportunity because he believes in the providence of God. And the church there in Rome concludes, if Paul can preach while he's chained and under house arrest, what's my excuse? I don't have an excuse. And so sometimes we see negative circumstances as paralyzing when we need to see them actually as opportunities that if we believe God works all things together for good, then um, we need to trust that. And his third comment? Well, I wasn't uh, fast enough on the fingers, so I, I, I didn't catch it. So, so he, he mentions, of course, um, you know, those um, that it cost nothing, 
those who um, uh, have no excuse, so to speak. And I don't remember what his third one is. I apologize. Yeah, I, and he's hung Tuesday up from the Tuesday line. is my tired day. <laughs> I come in tired, uh, but go ahead. All right, well, uh, while we were uh, reading that question and answering it, uh, we had a um, caller who dictated uh, a question, and there's some uh, various parts to it. Suzanne would like to know, well, actually, uh, do we want to go to Suzanne's or do we want to go to Leon's? We started Leon. Let's finish with Leon. All right. Because so Leon, uh, he wanted to know. Yeah, out of 1 Corinthians 13. So yeah. 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched between 12 and 14, and it's a discussion on spiritual gifts. And what had happened in the Corinthian church is much of their use of spiritual gifts had become self-centered and self-serving. So the love chapters, we often read it at weddings and other occasions, it's actually in the context of spiritual gifts that we need to be other-oriented with our spiritual gifts. And of course, they had put preeminence on some of the more dramatic sign gifts. And in the process, they were neglecting other gifts. And so he says, love never fails. If there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. It will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So he wants to know what is the meaning of this term, Perfect. Well, the word is teleos, and it can be used in a couple different ways. Literally perfect, like without blemish, absolutely uh, perfect. And so some would take this text of Scripture, they usually fall into the charismatic and Pentecostal camp, that when the perfect comes, namely heaven, and then that's subdivided, that viewpoint. Some would say, well, the perfect comes for you when you die and you're present with the Lord. Some would say it happens at the rapture. Some would say it happens at the second coming. Some would say it happens when the king comes and rules for a thousand years. A lot would say it happens in the future eternal state um, at the end of the millennial reign. So there's subdivisions within that, but they view it as the future. Therefore, tongues is uh, still being given today, and these people are called continuationists. That is, they would argue that certain ones of these gifts continue. The other usage of the term, and by the way, the word teleos, perfect, is never used in the context of the eschaton of future things anywhere in the New Testament, which is interesting in and of itself. But the term also teleos, mature, can be used uh, to describe something that is complete. And so James talks about, you know, we encounter many in various trials and the testing of our faith as we respond correctly can make us Teleos, perfect, complete, mature. And so this particular view is held by the cessationists. And cessation is the ending of certain spiritual gifts. And so it's argued that tongues ceased when the perfect came. And that the perfect is not the future in heaven, but it's the maturity of the church or the maturity of the church um, as expressed through the completion of the canon of Scripture. And so what is interesting is that he uses two different verbs, uh, one in the middle voice and the other in a passive tense to describe the perfect, the complete. And so he speaks about how the fact that tongues will cease, um, tongues will cease. It says, if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. So in reference to tongues, he speaks of something that's just ends. It just disappears. Uh, It's over. 
And when the canon of Scripture was completed, that's exactly what happened. Why? Because the gift of tongues was really not needed in the same sense. The gift of tongues, which was a revelationary gift that because the Bible was not completed, God, through extraordinary means, communicated to his church. And so it was a miracle when God spoke through someone who knew Hebrew, and all of a sudden they were speaking Greek, and they didn't know a word of Greek, and so on. You could replicate this with any language you could think of. And then there was someone who had the gift of interpretation who could all of a sudden, not knowing any Greek, they could understand what the tongue was. People would say, well, I know that guy. I've known him my whole life. He's never known a word of Greek, and he's interpreting Greek. And that guy who's speaking is a Hebrew, and he doesn't know a word of Greek, but he's speaking perfect Greek. And that was the miracle of Acts 2, not only the language, but even the dialect within the language. And so that was a sign, a sign gift by which God was speaking. Well, when the canon of Scripture was completed, there was really no need for that. It was done. It was over. And so God was finished with uh, the gift of tongues. And it doesn't show up for nearly 1,900 years later uh, when people say, well, the gift is back. But the way the gift is back is nothing like the way it was expressed in the first century. And certainly the, the word here for prophecy and knowledge will be done away with. It's permanently stopped by an outside force, the word that's used there. It's stopped by an outside force. And certainly, you know, again, there's a mediated view here that takes the two and combines it, that um, prophecy and knowledge will certainly be done away from in heaven and that there'll be no Bible teachers in heaven because, you know, we'll see things in a different way. But I think, again, he's speaking in the revelationary sense that um, this need for new revelation, which is what's been the focus in reference to prophecy, not so much foretelling, but foretelling, and then foretelling what was foretold, this new revelation, that that will be done. And so Paul goes on and says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, then when? Then when the scripture is completed. Right now we have partial knowledge. Uh, we know in part, but we'll know fully. Um it will know in a face-to-face kind of way. And that face-to-face kind of way, that same language is used of Moses, and it's used not of Moses' fellowship with God, but the revelation that God gave Moses. And so God's revelation right in the early church was in part, but it came in full. And so now we have a completed book by which we can search the truth and see clearly what it is that God has revealed. Right. Anyway, but I'm telling you, that's a that's a really short, simplistic answer to a much more. If I were preaching on this, I would probably spend three weeks just on this very subject. But wow. go ahead. All right. So uh, Suzanne called, and she dictated a question. Uh, it's a multi-part question. First of all, she'd like to know if you know or have heard of Chuck Missler and would like your thoughts on him. And in relation to all that, she had a question about 1 Timothy 2.14. Did Adam know what he was doing when he went along with Eve? Chuck Missler, in a recent commentary, mentioned that Adam took a bite of the forbidden fruit because he loved Eve so much he didn't want her to sin alone. He sinned out of her love for her. What are your thoughts? And should the caller continue to listen to Chuck? Sounds like eisegesis to me. Yeah, if Chuck said that, I would be surprised. He's dead now. He died a few years ago. Um, but he was a very popular Bible teacher, influenced by some Dallas Seminary P 
people in terms of his eschatology, but largely influenced, too, through the Calvary Chapel movement. Uh, he was very close to that when he was alive and very much of an independent thinker. He, he dealt with a lot of topics um, that were rather interesting, everything from UFOs to all, all kinds of and types of things. But um, let me just say that, you know, he said a lot of good and correct things. And there's a distinction, again, between what came up in the early calls this morning, a false teacher and a false teaching. And there are some things that I would definitely not agree with Chuck Missler on. And this is why we need to study Scripture. It's just like anything you hear me say, you need to put through the grid of Scripture and say, is that really what the Scripture says? And as a general rule, if it's new, it's not true. If it's new, it's not true. If you come and see something that no one else has seen in 2,000 years, there's a good chance maybe you've misunderstood the Scripture. And so Paul is giving an argument in the context of why it is a woman is not to be a pastor and why it is a woman is not to teach in a mixed audience so as to exercise authority over a man because God has made the man to be the head just as he's made the man to be the head in the home. It's not that men and women are not equal, but they carry on different functions. And so he says reason number one, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve So the order of creation dictates this leadership. But secondly, how the fall unfolded. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. In other words, Eve was deceived by the serpent, and God spells it out, of course, in Genesis chapter 3. And Paul refers to it in his second letter to the Galatians, whereas uh, to the Corinthians. But Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew precisely what he was doing, and he rebelled against God. And as the head of the race, ultimately, it's through Adam that death spread to the whole universe and came upon man. So anyway, um, so again, I, you know, I, I, Chuck Missler was a good guy when he was alive. He helped a lot of people. Do I agree with everything Chuck Missler said? No, but he, has, he had a lot of good things to say. I heard him on a few occasions. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Liz from Bluffton writes, if we are left with a president who has been elected illegally, should we follow Biden, biblically speaking, of course, or do we stay on the narrow path? Well, listen, I don't know we know for sure who the president will be. We do know that the media does not declare who the president is. The Congress of the United States, after the electoral votes are counted, and then the Congress on January the 6th officially votes on that count. So technically, there's not an official designation on who's president-elect until January the 6th. Lay that aside, there seems to be underlying issues that are going on that the Trump administration, they've got basically this week to do it. You know, I've heard a lot about, hey, you know, there's computer fraud, and I wouldn't doubt it uh, in light of the program that was used and has been used in other countries like Venezuela to pull off illegal elections. So, um, and some people, and I'm certainly not a techno expert by any stretch, Rick will tell you that, but there are some people who say a fifth grader could hack the program and the software. I don't know. I do know, like in Michigan, 6,000 votes that were designated for President Trump were credited to Joe Biden. They say the stealing is much broader. One of his key attorneys, I think Susan, Susan Preston or whatever her name is, uh, she says hundreds of thousands of votes 
are uh, at stake here. That remains to be seen. I do know this, that come January 20th, whoever is sworn in as the next president of the United States, I will pray for and I will respect that office because God says I'm to honor the king and God says I am to pray for those who are in authority over me. That does not mean I will respect necessarily some of the beliefs and dictates that that person might teach because there are times when, like Peter said, we must obey God. Peter and the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. And so if Joe Biden wants to say that it's okay to murder babies, I'm going to preach against him. If Joe Biden says we should tear down the wall, I will say, well, the Bible teaches in the book of Acts that there should be borders. God has a lot to say about borders. He also has a lot to say about showing compassion on the alien, but no borders, no country. If Joe Biden says that we're going to by executive order because we don't have the Senate to pull it off, and I certainly hope um, they won't have the Senate, but he has some plans on day one that have huge ramifications for born-again Christians in this country. And if he wants to push the Transgender Equality Act upon us, you know, so you have some kind of festival at your church and some transgender guy comes in who says he's now a woman and he wants to use the woman's restroom and you say, man, you're not going in there. Uh, According to the Equality Act, there's going to be huge fines, jail time, or both. I mean, you know, people who voted for Biden had to be like so-called evangelicals for Biden, either not evangelical at all or just really stupid or incredibly naive. They obviously did not read the platform. And my counsel as a pastor to my people was read the platform and see which platform and policies best represent the Lord. I don't care about personality. It has nothing to do with whether you think Trump is arrogant or non-arrogant. It has everything to do with the platform and what are the policies that they are enacting, not to mention the things that he said he was going to do. He actually did. So he's been protective of Israel. He's been protective of religious freedom. He's been protective of evangelicals holding marriage between a man and a woman and not having some you know, guy go to jail because he thinks otherwise. He's done things by executive order to protect life like no other president in the last 40 years. The only president in the United States who actually attended, you know, a uh, rally there in D.C. So there's a lot to be said. Anyway, we need to pray and honor the office. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. Walk with Christ. Walk with Christ. 